This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for May 11th, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Today, we're also joined by Mark Lipsitch. Mark is an infectious disease epidemiologist at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, who studies the evolution and transmission of infectious agents, along with the role of immunity generated both by natural infection and by vaccination. Mark founded and leads the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics at Harvard, which is focused on applying tools such as mathematical modeling to infectious disease to ultimately inform decision-making. Mark was recently seconded to the CDC, where he's the scientific director of the new Center for Forecasting and Outbreak Analytics, a group dedicated to making predictions that can help guide national policies. We've asked Mark to tell us about the work that he's planning at the center. But before we get there, I'd like to talk about an article we published today on vaccinating children. What did we learn from that study? Steve, this work evaluated mRNA-1273, the Moderna vaccine, in children ages 6 to 11. Remember that P162B2, the Pfizer vaccine, is already available for this age group. In this study, however, the researchers looked at the Moderna vaccine, and they used a reduced dose as compared to what's used in adults. They administered either the vaccine or placebo in a three-to-one randomization, doses spaced 28 days apart. Their primary endpoints were safety and immunogenicity, although they also assessed the efficacy of the vaccine to prevent infection. Between the two groups, there were a little more than 4,000 children. Once again, the researchers saw the usual array of reactogenic symptoms seen in other studies, but didn't observe other serious adverse events, though the group was rather small. The immune response was similar to that seen in adolescents and young adults who received the Moderna vaccine. Moreover, the vaccine did prevent infection with a vaccine efficacy close to 90%. It's important to remember that this work was done during the time that Delta was a dominant strain circulating. It's likely that it will be less impressive during Omicron. So we now have an alternative for vaccinating children that appears to protect against infection. I think we can reasonably assume that this vaccine will also decrease the rate of severe disease, though the rate of serious illness is too low in this age group to measure it in a study. So Eric and Steve, as you know, I've thought a lot about how we develop vaccines, particularly the mRNA platforms and the Moderna vaccine in particular. And I think these data raise some interesting issues that we as a community have to think about. First of all, how do we think about dose? When we think about a drug, we think about PKPD blood levels and size and volume of distribution and protein binding matter. When we think about an immunogen, a vaccine, we're thinking about what does it take to stimulate the immune response? And is that really a size dependent parameter? It's a feature we have to think about as a community in these types of studies where they do dose finding studies in younger as well as older individuals, there are some empiric data to guide the choice. But I think it's an interesting issue for us to consider that is a smaller dose. What are the implications and how do we assess it both in relation to the height of the immune response, the protection against variants, the durability of that immune response? And these are open questions, but systematic data have informed us at least as to what is reasonable today And the dose in this study of 50 micrograms given twice in the 6 to 11-year-olds was based upon immunogenicity data. And in fact, in this type of study, they were able to generate immunogenicity data 
that showed that this dose in the 6 to 11-year-olds gave a higher titer than a higher dose in larger children, thus suggesting that this dose makes sense. But I think it's an important thing for us to think about as we think about immune stimulation and the durability of that immune response, which of course takes time to assess. And then the issue of assessing efficacy. Unfortunately, Delta or COVID had such a high level of transmission that in a relatively small number of children, they were able to see meaningful efficacy within two to three months of initiating the vaccination series in the children from somewhere about 100 per thousand person year down to about 10 per thousand person year, depending on which type of endpoint one looked at, strongly suggesting that there is efficacy as well as immunogenicity against clinically observable infection. And as you point out, Eric, it's very difficult to assess implications on severe illness or implications on uncommon safety events, given that they're relatively small numbers of children studied. But all of the data are consistent with what we've seen in older children as well as in adults, demonstrating similar safety reactogenicity, immunogenicity, and efficacy strongly suggesting that this type of vaccine behaves in a similar way in the 6 to 11-year-olds. So I also find these data very encouraging, but as we all know from science, there are often more questions than answers, but at least it provides some very clear evidence of this therapy or this vaccine having potentially meaningful benefit in this very important population. So Lindsay, The pharmacology of vaccines is still a relatively primitive area, honestly. It's a very empiric approach. You give different doses of vaccine. You use a couple of immediate readouts. In this case, it was reactogenicity and efficacy as measured by antibody levels, which, of course, is only one measure of protection. And that's all we've got. That's not bad, and it's the best we can do right now. It is interesting that we don't know more. For example, would boosting with even lower doses give you a higher affinity or a better avidity antibody that would allow you to get better immune responses? We don't know that. and It would take a lot more human trials to try to figure that out. In fact, we really don't know that for any vaccine, but there might come a day when we have a better idea of the approach to developing vaccine dosages that is a little more sophisticated than what we do now. Eric, I think that's incredibly important, both about the dose, the number of immunizations, and the time period over which you give those immunizations to bring out the most potent protective immune response. And as we've seen with COVID, we don't have time to do two or three year studies to refine the immunology given the urgency with which it is spreading. So I think you're absolutely correct. We have a lot more to learn, but we've learned so much so fast that has improved health that we have to continue to iterate while we deliver a therapy of value to our communities. Mark, in these weekly updates, we've spent a lot of time talking about vaccines and about the studies that determine how they can be best used. How can the data and forecasting that you're now involved with complement the ongoing activities in vaccine development? That's a great question, and clearly it is a complementarity. So the first way is that really in the first year of this outbreak, and many people thought it would have been longer, it was very good fortune and very good efforts that got us to a vaccine in a year, 
But in the first year, we didn't have a vaccine, and we had to make a lot of decisions individually and at various levels of government about how to control both the spread and the impact of the virus and to understand who was getting it and how to target those control measures. And so analytics and data can inform those measures prior to the arrival of a vaccine and other pharmaceutical countermeasures. The second thing, though, is that's probably a little less appreciated is that as we interpret the signal of how well the vaccines are working, Eric made reference earlier to the importance of effectiveness data, observational data after the approval and rollout of vaccines. Those data are quite challenging to interpret and better approaches to understanding what it means when we see lower effectiveness after antibodies begin to wane and what it means when we see lower effectiveness against certain variants than others. Those are all analytical questions as well as biological ones. And so data and the methods to analyze them can be helpful in that as well. So Mark, you raise an important point about effectiveness and predictive analytics. As we think about lower effectiveness or a higher effectiveness, how can predictive analytics help us deal with some of our most challenging questions? And we've discussed this before on this podcast. What is our goal of vaccination or treatment? Is it to prevent infection, prevent mild to moderate illness, prevent severe illness, hospitalization, prevent community transmission? How do the analytics help us deal with these types of questions of what endpoint we care the most about when the data are uneven in these different domains for the different interventions, particularly severe disease, which I think many of us would think is most important, but also less common? Yeah, well, I think that analytics together with very high quality surveillance is the way that we can get a scientific input into that question. It is not entirely a scientific question. It's a policy and value-laden question as well. But initially, through observational studies in the months after the first mRNA and other vaccines were rolled out, it was clear that they protected against infection to a remarkable degree, higher than many of us anticipated. And as time has gone on and immune responses have waned and new variants have come, it's become clear that that's just not a feasible option with current vaccines and current variants to control transmission with vaccines as the main tool. So I think that analytics together with good data can inform us into what is the set of possible ways we can use them. And then the choice about which approaches is one of how high we can get the vaccine coverage and who's being left out and those kinds of things. In your new position, Mark, you have some control over how analytics are performed. You have less control over what sort of data come in. If you were emperor of the center rather than the scientific director, what kind of changes would you advocate for? I think that's a great question. And it's actually one that I've been giving a lot of thought to and that our team has been giving a lot of thought to because there's a parallel initiative going on at CDC called the Data Modernization Initiative, which is really designed to improve our systems and our gathering of data. And in fact, in the meetings today at CDC that I'll be in, one of the topics of discussion is what are the data needs for sort of ideal pandemic surveillance system. And to me, the biggest categories of that are some approach to getting a random sample of the population that doesn't come in because they're sick and doesn't come in because they need a test to travel, but is sampled on a routine basis in 
ways similar to the two systems that were set up and have been recently downsized in the UK, the REACT study and the ONS study. Those allow you to have a ground truth about infection rates that are completely in a different category of quality from what we have when we just count cases. And it's remarkable that the analysts in the UK basically don't use case counts very much because they have this much better source of data for their models. The second category of questions that we have to be able to answer on an ongoing basis, and COVID has really shown this in a way that we didn't understand as well from previous pandemics, is there are a set of questions that are specific to variants and to different phases of the pandemic as our immune responses change. And those are how severe is the clinical phenotype? What is the probability of hospitalization and death in people of various vaccine and infection histories? What is the effectiveness of vaccines in preventing those? How good are the diagnostics in picking up the new variant? And what are the kinetics of the new variant in terms of viral shedding? That kind of question is one that's more generalizable. So you don't need to know it in every part of the population. You don't need a random sample of the population, but you need a diverse sample of the population studied very intensively. And so another piece that we are working on in our Center for Forecasting and Outbreak Analytics is one part of the discussion of how to set these systems up. So the approach is really to set up study platforms to answer those. And those exist to a large degree for certain things, especially vaccine effectiveness. But some of the others have been necessary to sort of set up on the fly. Mark, you have been involved in certainly the first kind of data collection, sort of systematic surveillance with the Khalid group in Israel where they have a single database of a very large patient population that's integrated. In the U.S., it's much more difficult because there's a lot more fragmentation of healthcare delivery. How do you think about obtaining data that has some consistency that allows you to apply the types of analytics that you'd want to apply? Yeah, well, the U.S. is a more fragmented system, that's for sure. For those types of data where a diverse but not necessarily complete or representative sample is informative, like questions of severity, one of the first things that CFA has done in terms of establishing some of these parameters was a study we did with the Kaiser Permanente Southern California group and a colleague, Joe Lunard, at the University of California, Berkeley, currently in preprint, where we assessed Omicron severity compared to Delta, which was possible in their well-studied and well-characterized HMO, similar to the Khalid work from Israel. I think the harder task is to have a picture of how the transmission is evolving in the population from day to day and week to week, which is something you really do need to know in each place separately. And there, I think that a random sampling approach really is ideal, but is very hard to accomplish. It doesn't have to be in the context of healthcare. It could be done separately. So, for example, the ONS study in the United Kingdom, the COVID infection survey, was conducted by more or less their equivalent of the Census Bureau, which sent people out with test kits to all over the country and was informed by, but totally separate from the National Health Service. A lot of possible models, and that is one of the questions that we are working on, although it's part of a much larger set of questions that go beyond just the Center for Forecasting and Outbreak Analytics. Mark, many reporters have described the work of your CDC center as weather forecasting for COVID. Is that a good analogy for the work that you're doing? I think it is a good analogy, but like all analogies, it has some limits. So it's a good analogy in the sense that our long-term goal 
is to make information and even predictions available to everyone, including individual people, in a way that is useful for them to make decisions. In the same way that we look at the weather and decide whether to take an umbrella or whether to plan a picnic, the long-term vision is to have a picture of what is the risk of infections of different sorts for individual people. A second really close analogy is that weather forecasting used to be really terrible in two ways. First of all, it wasn't very predictive. And secondly, it was described to people in a way that was confusing. Barometric pressure and relative humidity and things that are not really the primary determinants of whether you want your your umbrella or not. And so through decades of investment in technology, in modeling, in better data acquisition, weather forecasting has gone from not being very good to being much better. And through decades, or at least some years, of efforts to improve the way we describe weather forecasts, they have become more useful to people. So those are two goals that we have to improve the quality and to improve the usability. The limit of the analogy is that weather, no matter what we say about it, it's not going to change. We sometimes wonder (laughs) whether uh, carrying an umbrella prevents the rain, but we all know it doesn't. In infectious diseases, that's not true, to put it mildly. So the best predictions are ones that cause themselves not to come true. The best predictions are warnings that if we don't control this infection, it will have consequences that we need to avoid, and that leads people to implement measures to control it. And so human behavior is both a part of the system and therefore a challenge and a limitation on how well we can predict. We're never going to predict the infectious diseases out three months because human behavior is, for most infectious diseases, too much of a determinant, and we don't have predictive models of human behavior. But we can do better in terms of the short to medium-term forecasts and then incorporate that human behavior into alternative possible futures that we consider when we're trying to evaluate interventions and whether they're worth the effort. So, Mark, I think that the fact that the prediction can change behavior, that changes the prediction, is really an important concept that we have to all understand and actually use to our advantage. But I'm interested in your thoughts on which factors are most influential as you think about forecasting for COVID. With the weather analogy, which has its limitations, one can look at changes in barometric pressure, humidity, temperature. Which factors do you weigh the most as you think about forecasting for COVID that we should all be aware of? Well, I think it's clear that human activities that drive transmission are now well understood for COVID. They involve close contact involving poor ventilation and non-use of measures to prevent transmission, such as masks. So the human behaviors of how we encounter each other clearly drive transmission, and that is sort of central piece of it. I think the other thing that affects transmission most strongly at some times and in some circumstances is use of vaccines. That was more true, as I mentioned, early in the use of vaccines when the strain was better matched and when the immune responses were fresher and has been less true over time. But as vaccines learn to catch up with the evolution of the virus and as technologies to deliver vaccines change, we can imagine an impact on transmission. But the other really important piece, as you asked about earlier, is the question of severe disease. So we care 
about cases because they lead to illness and because they lead to people having to stay home and so forth, but we care even more about hospital burden and the downstream consequences and severe outcomes and mortality. And so I think the last thing is the one that we understand the least well, which is the impact of multiple exposures to vaccine and infection on developing an immune response that's protective, maybe not against transmission, but against these severe outcomes. Early on, I sort of came up with the tagline that we may not be able to defeat the pandemic, but we can defang it if we can get enough immunity into the population to make the cases not so severe. Mark, what's the distinction between analytics and forecasting, and how do you use each? That's a great question. People making decisions at every level from the World Health Organization and presidents all the way to individuals need to know a few things. They need to know how many people have the virus at a given time. They need to know how bad it's going to be if they get the virus. They need to know what the next few weeks probably hold so that short-term planning can be done. And they need to have some picture of what the longer-term future is for longer-term planning. Forecasting is one piece of that spectrum, and it's one that people understand, and it's in our title, but it's not the whole spectrum. Forecasting is that short-term to medium-term prediction where we can say, given the current trends, we expect that hospitals will experience a surge in the next few weeks. You could expand the concept to include what we call at CFA scenarios, and what CDC has a scenario modeling hub, which is what might happen over the next, say, three months if under circumstances of waning immunity and whatever we assume about variants arising or not. That is the timescale where human behavior matters, and so we can't produce an unconditional forecast, but we can give a set of possible outcomes. The analytics are really about trying to understand the inputs to those models. So the analytics are really about how well do vaccines work? How severe is the infection? What is the likely profile of virus shedding in someone who's diagnosed on a Tuesday? When will they start testing negative? When will they stop shedding? And so forth. So the analytics are really about trying to answer more specific questions that are inputs into the bigger picture. And the forecast is kind of the short-term bigger picture, and the scenarios are the longer-term bigger picture. Given what you know right now in these early days of forecasting, how is it affecting your behavior? I am being less cautious than I was before I got vaccinated and boosted, and still I'm sitting in a hotel today in Atlanta where not many people are masking. I wore a mask when I went into the lobby. I'm eating in restaurants, sometimes indoors, but I'm also, when possible, trying to find ways to do things outdoors or in ways that are less transmission-causing. And, you know, using the example of my family or almost any group of people I know, there's lots of individual risk balancing because each person has their own tolerance for the risks and the consequences are different for people who can take time off work without losing a large amount of their salary compared to someone for whom missing a week of work would be a major economic hit or having to be at home would make it impossible to work. Mark, a bit of a different question, but picking up on the concept we discussed before that if you forecast correctly, behavior changes. So the concern of the forecast does not happen. How do we as a community know if you're getting it right? If the goal is to always be wrong? (laughs) It's a great question. And I think one of the big advances in 
measurement in the last few years is the ability to measure human mobility to get quick survey results of how many people are doing certain control measures. And so we can monitor those. And in conjunction with that, beyond, say, three weeks or so, it's a bit arbitrary, any responsible forecast will say if current trends continue. And there should be some small print about what those current trends are assumed to be. So we can check whether the human behavior has changed in a way that explains a deviation from the forecast. So I think that's a partial answer to your question, but I think quantifying that is still an ongoing challenge. In the shorter term, a lot of what you're forecasting is not the new infections, but is the consequences downstream as the people now infected or soon to be infected move through the system. Um, And so that is less susceptible to those kinds of changes. Mark, your CDC center was conceived in the midst of the COVID outbreak, but clearly there's been a larger need for this sort of work since COVID is not the first and it's very certainly not the last infectious disease outbreak. At this point with COVID, there's a good deal of data available that allow you to do this forecasting, but it seems like a much higher hurdle to anticipate what would happen in the next disease outbreak where there might be many more unknowns. So how do you think about the challenges associated with diseases that we've never seen before? Yeah, that's another great question. And I think one of the tasks is to have surveillance systems that are rapidly adaptable to new challenges. Much of the infrastructure for COVID was adapted from influenza surveillance because the diseases are similar enough in their presentation that you could ask a lot of the same questions in a lot of the same ways by adapting existing infrastructure. Zika is another recent infectious disease challenge, which was completely different and ended up calling on specialties that are not as closely involved in most pandemics, like people working on birth defects and consequences of infections during pregnancy. And so I think one of our key principles at the Center for Forecasting and Outbreak Analytics is to be well integrated with subject matter experts throughout CDC, and we've been building those relationships in the months since we began, and also to design analytical approaches that are flexible enough to deal with different kinds of data and to work with state and local governments, which I haven't mentioned yet, but is a really important part of our partnership to put some of those analytical tools in their hands and allow them to be responsive because As we all know, these outbreaks start somewhere, and the early signals may not be national ones, but maybe local ones. But I think the key thing is to be adaptable, and we will soon be scaling up our scientific staff dramatically, and so we are looking for people who have a range of expertise and are able to pivot when the challenge becomes new. And I think CDC has traditionally been actually quite good at that. The classic CDC career involves many different kinds of diseases that people work on over their career. People are used to that flexibility. So, Mark, you talk about influenza. Obviously, we've all been talking about and dealing with coronavirus. But right now, globally, Ebola, measles, yellow fever, loss of monkeypox, there are a variety of infectious pathogens that are surging in different communities. What type of process is there to monitor these types of events to sort out which of them have crossed the threshold of concern? How do you think about that? This is something that we are working to formalize within CFA. 
So there are multiple parts of the U.S. government and multiple parts of CDC that deal with these from a subject matter perspective. So there's a measles group and a flavivirus group and so forth. And then there are the parts that deal with the global health aspects. We are integrating in with what's known as the graduated response at CDC, which is a process by which the efforts are escalated as the threat grows. And so the way that CFA will work is to integrate into that response as CDC as a whole is mobilizing. Some of our analyses will be inputs into those decisions, but it will be a kind of agency-wide and potentially U.S. government-wide decision of how to graduate that response. With respect to that, Mark, a lot of these outbreaks that Lindsay's talking about are abroad. They're not in the U.S. They're in areas where you don't have so much control over what kind of data are coming in. How do you think about the international efforts to collect these kinds of data? It's a great question. And one of the effects of the COVID pandemic has been a real growth in the interest around the world in trying to improve data and analytics. So there's a new pandemic hub at the World Health Organization that's located in Berlin. There's a growth of agencies in different countries to try to make sense of data as they come in. And we are working to partner with those organizations in various countries. The initial focus of CFA is going to be on domestic preparedness with the understanding that both the issues on average don't begin in the United States because the world is a big place and we're not the majority of the the world. So on average, most infectious disease threats begin somewhere else. And also the data availability may be really good in one country, as it has been from certain countries during the COVID pandemic for various reasons about surveillance and vaccines and other things. So building global partnerships is a really important part of what we will do. Our initial focus will be domestic, but in order to do our job well, we have to begin to respond to threats before they enter the U.S. Thank you, Mark, for joining us today. And as always, thank you, Eric, and thank you, Lindsay.